0: must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream. Welcome to Great Men Back Then. Here's your host, Lauren Scott. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and welcome to Great Men Back Then the show where we talk about great men in American history. Except today, we will be doing something different than what I've done in the past, and we will be talking about a woman. I'm actually really excited for this episode. When I started my history show about a year ago, I called it Great Men back then simply because I really liked the rhyme, but I never intended to only talk about men in history. That's just kind of how it turned out. Um, But this year, I really want to change that and talk about more women in American history. And so what better way to start this little new tradition than to talk about Elizabeth Smith Friedman? Not only is she a Hillsdale alum from the class of 1915, but she was also a Pi Beta Phi here on campus. And she was the biggest code breaker in both world wars. On top of being the biggest codebreaker in both of the world wars, she also helped bring down Al Capone. Now, you may be thinking, wow, she sounds really cool and super influential. Why have I never heard about her? Great question. All of her files were classified up until 2008, so you've probably never heard of her. And if you have, you don't know much about her life. So I hope to bring awareness to her and to her legacy Um, through this episode of Great Men Back Then. So without further ado, let's jump right into Elizabeth's life. From the outside looking in, Elizabeth looked like a pretty normal person. She was a suburban housewife and she had two children. But what many people did not know about her is that she was living a double life. Not only did she help with code breaking in World War One, but she also helped in World war two and especially in World War One whenever there was really no code breaking agency. In America, it was pretty much one woman fighting against an army. And so, as you can imagine, that's a lot of pressure because her success or failure could determine the outcome of the war. She came from a very large Quaker family in small town Indiana, but she longed for an adventurous life. Her mother had 10 children and Elizabeth was the youngest. And she always pitied her mom because she thought that her life was just overtaken by childbearing. And she also hated her name. She hated being called Elizabeth Smith. She hated being called Miss Smith because she didn't want to be an ordinary person. She wanted to be something extraordinary. And from a very young age, she loved reading and she loved poetry. And so she wanted to do something with that. However, her father did not support her going to college and it took a lot of convincing for her to convince him that she should go to school. And so he eventually allowed her to go to college and lent her the money, but at 6% interest and she promised to pay him back. In 1913, she transferred to Hillsdale College because it was closer to home, and she studied Greek and English, and then she graduated in 1915. Like I mentioned earlier, she was also a member of Pi Beta Phi, a sorority that we still have here on campus. She studied much Shakespeare at Hillsdale and she was really fascinated with the intricacies of language. And this is kind of where her obsession with language started, was right here at Hillsdale in her English classes. After she graduated from Hillsdale in 1915, she became a teacher and she taught for about a year, but she really didn't like it. So she then returned home in great defeat. On a random afternoon, she went to the library in her hometown and was looking for some Shakespeare books. And the librarian said, hey, there was a man in here the other day who was looking for someone who has a fascination with Shakespeare. And I think you may be the person he's looking for. And she was kind of confused and didn't really pay much attention to it. But then before she knew it, this very tall, large man named George Fabian came in the library and basically was like, you're coming with me. And so believe it or not, she went with him and he hired her and he, she became working for this man named George Fabian. And basically Fabian had a belief that Shakespeare had help writing his plays from a man named Francis Bacon And he wanted Elizabeth to help him prove that this was true by solving the hidden codes within his play. And so she had to master a method of encoding messages invented by Bacon. This work was very tedious, but she loved the challenge. So this is when she's first introduced to encrypted messages and coding is right here with this man named George Fabian that she randomly met at a library. This work is also what brought her to meet the love of her life, William Friedman. They worked together on trying to find the hidden message within Shakespeare's play, but they saw little indication of embedded codes. And so, They stopped working for Fabian and pretty much saw no future in code breaking for themselves. Once the war broke out, there was the invention of the radio and the air was full of messages relaying important information that could be intercepted. Now, at this time in American history, obviously code breaking is more important than it ever has been. But the U.S. was extremely unprepared because we had no code-breaking agency at this time. So this is when George Fabian, the man that Elizabeth had been working for, established the first dedicated code-breaking unit in America in Riverbank. And he placed Elizabeth and William in charge. And so instead of working on a fun little project to find hidden messages in Shakespeare's play, they were now asked to break codes for the U.S. military in a world war. They began decrypting messages and using frequency analysis, and Elizabeth especially was very good at spotting patterns, even better than William was, but they were very good at working together. And eventually, Elizabeth and William reached the limits of what was known about coding, so they actually started inventing their own methods, which sounds very complicated and intense, and I'm sure it was, Um, but they did it because that's just how talented they were. In the first eight months of World War I, Elizabeth William and a few other colleagues broke all messages for every part of the U.S. military and Department of Justice. The Riverbank Laboratories publications turned cryptology from language to statistics. And basically they were forming a new science of immense power. And right here, Elizabeth is training the first generation of code breakers for the U.S. military. So eventually the workload at Riverbank dwindled and William signed up for military duty as a field code in Europe. Now, although Elizabeth wanted to join, she couldn't since she was a woman and she was very devastated about this because she is pretty much the person who taught William all he knew. So here William was advancing his career and she kind of just had to watch from a sideline and not get to be a part of that. When William returned, they moved to Washington, and William had a pretty good job lined up because he earned quite a reputation for himself on the battlefield. In 1923, Elizabeth gave birth to a daughter, soon followed by a son. At this point in her life, she truly does believe that her code-breaking days are over, but she could not be more wrong. In 1925, a Coast Guard officer showed up at her house and basically informed her that the Coast Guard's Network of radio towers had intercepted hundreds of encrypted messages, but nobody knew how to break them. Decrypting these messages would give them the upper hand against a deadly adversary. Prohibition caused gangsters to murder pretty much anyone who opposed them. Uh, The black market was rising up and it was controlled by gangsters and the mafia. So basically, they were making a huge mockery of the Coast Guard since they were supposed to make sure that there was no importation of liquor and they wanted Elizabeth to help them. So with hopes to putting a stop to organized crime, she agreed to help. During her first three months on the job, she decrypted two years worth of messages all by herself. She was also weaponizing the data that she was gathering, and with this information, the U.S. government could see what organized crime looked like and how to stop it. In 1931, the Coast Guard approved Elizabeth's plan to build an official code-breaking unit, the first ever to be run by a woman. Now, because of prohibition, crime syndicates had grown into multinational businesses. With the help of Elizabeth, the U.S. government was able to take these criminals to court. She was the key witness in a series of trials. The government was trying to take down Conexco, which was the largest rum-running enterprise in the world, and they supplied liquor to the most infamous mobster in the country, Al Capone. Elizabeth agreed to testify against Al Capone. And doing this, she understood that she was attacking one of the most dangerous men in the country. And so this was a big risk to take, but she was fighting for what she believed to be true. And so she was willing to put her life on the line. Al Capone's defense attorney tried to accuse Elizabeth of witchcraft and basically make her testimony not valid. But what Elizabeth did was she asked if there was a blackboard and they gave one to her and she gave a lesson on code breaking. And once she gave that lesson on code breaking, the defense attorney did not try to attack her again. And it was really after this instant she became a national hero and people started to learn who she was and what she was doing. Not only was Elizabeth dealing with the stress of living a double life and dealing with some pretty classified work that could get pretty intense, she was also struggling with a lot of things at home. In 1940, her husband William became very depressed. His work was stressful and classified, and unfortunately, he could not speak to Elizabeth about it. Now, something that is important to note about William is that he was a Jewish man. And at his job, he was dealing with a lot of classified information. And so, it's very unfortunate that he knew a lot about the terrible things that were happening to the Jews. And this had such a big effect on William because he had family back in Germany and he knew what they were going through. And yet this had such a big effect on him that he actually had to go to a psych hospital and he was there for a total of three months. So during this time, not only is Elizabeth having to deal with her own work on the side, but she's also having to be there for her husband, who is Depressed, and he's not himself. And they really, in those three months, they don't know if he can ever come back to normal life. And she had to be the stronger one for the two of them. And again, she also has two small children. And so she's having to live this double life. She's having to deal with the balance of how do I care for my husband? How do I be there for him when I don't know how to be there for him? How do I encourage him when I can't even begin to understand what he's going through? And she's having to be there for her children as well. They need their mother and she unfortunately cannot be there all the time. And then on top of her husband and her children, she again has her work with decrypting messages and people rely heavily on Elizabeth. And so it's good to kind of get inside her family life and see what was she going through whenever she was also helping with these wars and with bringing down Al Capone because she wasn't just a single woman who had nothing else to worry about. She was also there for her family during all of this, which I think even makes her more respectable and it's more of an accomplishment than most people that we study in history. Thankfully, after three months, William did return to normal life. But after that happened, he never really was the same. He always had a huge burden on him. And he wasn't the same man after learning what happened to the Jews in Germany. Now, fortunately, though, he still loved Elizabeth and he thanked her and he, he knew that he owed it to her. Like she was the reason he could come out of that state. And if she hadn't have been there for him every single day, he, doesn't, he, didn't, he didn't know if he actually could come out of that. And so their love never changed despite the hardships, which is also something that I really admire about the two of them. In September of 1941, after Pearl Harbor, Elizabeth's team shifted from Coast Guard to Navy, and now the Navy had a rule that a woman cannot be in charge of men, and so Elizabeth was placed second in command, even though she was more experienced than anyone there. And this was really hard for Elizabeth because she lost leadership of something that she basically created. So while she was decrypting messages for the Navy, she kept seeing the name Sargo. This was a code name for one of the Secret Service's main men in South America, and he was also part of Hitler's elite. She began to decode Sargo's messages, and she realized his network was transmitting the location of Allied ships to U-boats in the Atlantic. Now, this was really dangerous for the Allied powers because it was so easy for the Germans to pick off these supply ships one by one, this could mean that the English would be totally out of the war. And without the English, the war is pretty much over. And so, it was very important to keep a close eye on these U-boats. In 1942, Elizabeth decrypted a series of dispatches about the largest allied supply ship, the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary had extreme military value, and Hitler was offering $250,000 to the U-boat captain who could bring her down. Now, guided by the secret messages, the U-boats found the Queen Mary off the coast of Brazil. There were 8,000 men on the ship. But before the U-boats could strike, Elizabeth's decreps were relayed to the captain of the ship, and he was able to then act quickly and bring the ship safely to port. As Elizabeth started to decrypt Sargo's messages, the balance in the Atlantic began to tip. The ships were able to take evasive action, and many U-boats were sunk. Now, this was some of the most important work in World War II because it allowed the supply chain to exist. Things were going pretty good for Elizabeth, and her work was very successful, until a very horrible thing happened. All of a sudden, Nazi spies were rounded up, pushing Sargo further underground, and because of that, the airwaves went silent. Elizabeth's work was tripped up by one of her own, American FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, He wanted all the glory. He wanted the headlines. He wanted the credit for all the work that Elizabeth did. So he cut America off from intelligence that was allowing the convoys to be safe in the Atlantic Ocean, all because he wanted the credit for this. And this is very sad because then Sargo and his men, they basically changed their coding method and Elizabeth and her team are back at square one. And Sargo escaped and rebuilt his network and came up with a much more complex system of codes. And Elizabeth suspected the codes were being generated by the Enigma, which was a highly complex machine used by German intelligence services. Finally, after two months, she discovered a careless mistake made by the spies, and she was then able to follow Sargo's activities once again. Anywhere Sargo and his men turned, his spies were outflanked, and she was able to give information to the Allies, which then allowed them to break up the spy ring. Within months, the Nazi threat in the Western Hemisphere was eliminated. Sargo disappeared and never rebuilt his network again. Now, although this is a great, amazing victory, unfortunately, it was a lonely one. She signed a Navy oath promising silence until death. She could not even tell her own husband, William. She could do nothing as J. Edgar Hoover took credit for all her accomplishments Hoover took all the decrypts, which was over 4,000. Elizabeth had sent and had them stamped with FBI identification numbers, wiping away Elizabeth and her team from all official records. Elizabeth told her friends that she was just carrying on with a routine Navy job, as if she didn't just help stop a world war. Quote, Elizabeth was, is, and continues to be the most fascinating woman I've ever known. End quote. Said William, her beloved husband. Her unit disbanded after the war and she was out of a job. Computers became the new thing, and quite frankly, she didn't understand it and didn't really care to understand it. She created a new science of code breaking that has influenced the NSA and will continue to do so for decades to come. She laid the foundation for everything that happens at American intelligence agencies today. However, despite the fact that she's one of the most important people in American history. She died in a nursing home alone in 1980, and she was poor. The government kept her files secret for 62 years. And finally, in 2008, they were declassified. I cannot even begin to imagine the emotions that Elizabeth must have been feeling through all of this. To think about all the sacrifices she made for her country, not because she wanted the credit, but because she knew it was the good and the right thing to do. And then to have that taken away from her by men and the FBI who just wanted the glory, it's a very sad and devastating thing. And to think that she died alone in a nursing home and that she died poor, it's just a very very sad thing to think about. And that is why I'm so passionate about her. And I think everybody should know who she is, especially students and alumni of Hillsdale College. And I hope and pray that one day everybody will know her legacy and recognize her as the great person she was. It is because Elizabeth Smith Friedman put her life on the line to help and two world wars that I argue she was a great woman. Thank you for listening to Great Men Back Then. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.